Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. It's the late 1940s. Tokyo in Japan is a ruined city where hungry people wait in long lines for food. That is never enough. In amongst the debris, an inventor come tax criminal is making his way to the shed in his back garden and he begins to tinker. Ten years later, Tokyo is in the grips of an economic miracle. Neon lights blaze out across a futuristic city and inside that shed, our hero is putting the finishing touches to an invention. He takes a small metal cage filled with cooked noodles and plunges them into hot oil. As the noodles are flash fried, all the water inside them turns into steam and escapes. What's left is a nest of dried noodles that will keep forever without going bad and will rehydrate quickly when hot water is added. Perhaps surprisingly, of all the incredible inventions that Japan will produce in the years to come, this is the one that they will point to as their crowning glory, the humble instant noodle. Hello and welcome to another episode of Patented, a podcast about the history of invention from History Hit. I'm Dallas Campbell. Thank you for your company. Today it's all about instant noodles or instant ramen to give them their more accurate name and the story of how they came to be. Pot noodles you might be familiar with if you come from the UK. My favourite culinary treat as a child was the pot noodle sandwich, particularly the curry pot noodle sandwich. You need really, really cheap white bread and pot noodles and lots of thick butter. Absolutely delicious. Anyway, my guest today, Barak Kushner, historian of modern Japan and author of Slurp, a social and culinary history of ramen. Beware, pot noodles will be mentioned. the year 2000 and the Japanese were asked what Japan's greatest invention of the 20th century was and obviously this is Japan so they had a lot of things to choose from from the Walkman the bullet train digital cameras Pokemon cat cafes 
the list goes on. But the winner, apparently, was Instant Noodles, or to give them their proper name, Instant Ramen. Why on earth was this the case? To talk us through the history and more about the Instant Noodle, please welcome Barack Kushner. Now, look, you've had a really kind of weird, interesting career, but you are a military historian first and foremost, I think. Is that fair? Or a cultural historian of China and Japan? I think I would say I like to look at different relationships between Japan and China and how they have influenced one another, not just in war. Crikey, presumably the noodle is a fairly big influence. Did one come from the other? Did, where did the, I didn't even know where the noodles... Did it start in China or...? That's the first big question, right? So to go back to the beginning when you said in 2000, the Japanese considered one of their greatest inventions instant ramen, it kind of begs the question, well, what's Japanese about noodle soup and what's Japanese about instant ramen? And that was a, a question that kind of plagued me when I first lived in Japan. And so from that curiosity, I began the same quest that other people had, which is what's going on there? What is this noodle soup? And why is it Japanese? Yeah, I mean, I can't believe that they put instant ramen over things like cat cafes. It's rather amazing, isn't it? It's, it's... <laughs> I was in Japan the other day, well, a few years ago, like before... Before the pandemic. Before, yeah, no, it, was before, it was long before the pandemic. And I remember we were doing a thing and we thought we need something that's uniquely Japanese. And we ended up in a cat cafe. I've never been able to go to a cat cafe because I have a, a death allergy to cats. Really? <laughs> yes, I cannot be near cats. I can be near ramen, but I cannot be near cats. Can you be near someone who's been near cats? It's not like, a good idea. Wow, that's yeah. a crazy... I, I, it, it is one of the more bizarre phenomena. It really is. So did, when did you first go to Japan? When you were an undergraduate or younger or older? No, I, I went after I had taught high school for a couple of years. Hmm. I went out to Japan as an English teacher. It was a very expensive ticket in the early 90s. And the only way to get out there was to have a job. That's um, right. So someone would pay for the jet airplane. I got to Japan. And like many people who hadn't interacted with Japanese, or the internet didn't exist then. I had never heard Japanese, really. I took a quick summer course before I went. I didn't really know much about it in books. And I arrived and I hated the food. Really? Raw fish and traditional Japanese cuisine up until really, as you said, in the 2000s, it wasn't yet cosmopolitan for everybody else. And so I found it abhorrent. I just couldn't stomach it. But it's more than just raw fish, though, Japanese cuisine. Ah, that's... Well, that's what you find out later on as you can read a bit more of menus and restaurants. I mean, I had walked into somebody's house at one point in the village I was living in because I thought it was a restaurant. I couldn't read signs and I thought it was the name of the family that lived in it and they had hung a blue curtain outside and I made that mistake. So I didn't know what I was eating when I was eating. <laughs> but then I discovered ramen and I thought, well, this is not what Japanese traditionally eat, I was told. Then you kind of start the question, well, what is going on? What is this? Whose who's is it? Is it Chinese? Is it Japanese? Is it a hybrid? Food, you know, it's so much part of every nation's cultural identity. It's these are important markers. Let's have the history of ramen. Where does it come? Where did noodles come from originally? Are they Chinese? Are they Japanese? Are they? I mean, we all have every culture has a sort of similar type of thing, don't they? Yeah, I mean, I think it's one of those issues that a lot of cultures would like to claim ownership of the noodle as opposed to a noodle. I think they come from basically Central Asia and they go in different directions. There's also European roots. There's a lot of sharing from kind of the Middle East as well. And so they kind of expand from Central Asia into China as well. And then through China into Japan, food technology over the centuries comes to Japan through the travel of Buddhist monks. And so you could argue that domestically in Japan, the noodle itself comes from China and the technology to make those noodles. Is the thing about noodles, is it that it's kind of cheap to make and anyone can have it? It's one of those sort of democratic foods that a bit, I don't I suppose like rice or bread that is just so 
standard. It's the thing that everyone can eat. It's Yeah, that's much more of a 20th or maybe mid 20th century phenomenon. Most people did not eat wheat flour or buckwheat flour or flour noodles, at least in Japan, until you get to the late 19th century, early 20th century. They eat much coarser grains and acorns, other things you can forage. It's not a very rich diet. So it being a very democratic food is is much later in the, in the process. Oh, okay. Acorns didn't really catch on. <laughs> I mean, there's better tasting things and they take a lot of time to process as well. <laughs> yeah, they do. Uh, well, maybe for our listeners, just tell us what a ramen is and how they're made. And when we're talking about ramen, I mean, we talk about noodles in the UK. We don't often use the word ramen. So what do we mean by ramen? So, I mean, in order to really understand the history of instant ramen, you have to understand its earlier cousin, which is just the ramen dish, which are noodles, which swim in a delicious umami-filled tasty broth. And that is something that develops in stages primarily due to a lot of Chinese migrants, workers, laborers coming to Japan in various waves, living in different parts of Japan from, you know, the kind of the early 20th century and forming these kind of hybrid dishes that start out as kind of perhaps a soupy glop of leftover foods with noodles in them. And then eventually, by the time we get to the 19 teens and 20s, it's, you know, it's pleasant noodles, which have kind of an al dente feel. They're very different from the Japanese soba because they're made with alkaline water. And then there's the post-war explosion. So it really starts from Sino-Japanese interaction. It's an itinerant laborer food. It's a poor student food. You're not going to find it in kind of luxurious cafes. Okay. I'm thinking of a sort of pasta in Europe. Is that a sort of similar equivalent? It's relatively cheap. It's quick to make. It's easy to make. Except the Europeans don't put it into a broth. Yes. And that is something I would say that's much more Asian. And you still see today that Chinese, Japanese, Koreans really enjoy various forms of noodles that are swimming in some kind of, it's not a sauce, it's a broth. And you slurp that broth with your spoon and you slurp your noodles with your chopsticks. Can we just clear that up? Because your book is called Slurp. Is slurping the polite thing to do? It's lifting the bowl, isn't it? You lift the bowl to you and slurp away. Is that right? You lift the bowl to slurp the broth, but you slurp your noodles through your chopsticks. And you are supposed to slurp because it's supposed to be served very hot. And if it's not hot, it's not ramen. Okay. So there is a whole kind of debate about that as well. Was it always a fast food or was it sort of cooked at home or was it generally a you talked about migrant workers. Was it something you'd get in cafes or I suppose we'd call it street food now, that type of establishment? Right. So you could traditionally, uh, pre-war, you would buy ramen. And this is kind of why we have to understand a little bit about the regular ramen and then why instant ramen becomes popular, because you're not going to cook ramen at home. The broth takes a long time to stew, anywhere from kind of half a day to a day. You have to have an industrial kitchen somewhat, or at least a gas burner outside that right. people would have in stands. So you're going to buy it outside. You're going to buy it at the rail station. You're going to buy it from a cart. You're not going to make it at home. And it was eaten as a snack. It was eaten in the morning or late at night. It wasn't necessarily a traditional lunch dish that you would go and buy. It's kind of an additional food that you would take for yourself when you could. Got it. I am looking at a photograph here which apparently is the first ever instant noodle packet. It's chicken ramen from from 1958. The crazy thing, it looks like completely modern. It's, you know, Japanese writing at the front. It looks very like you would pick up at a Japanese supermarket. First of all, before we get into how that happened, <laughs> what would that taste like if I opened that up and added hot water? What would I be eating? Well, I think you have to imagine the sheer astonishment of people in 1958 when this arrived on the shelves that... You know, housewives up until the late 1950s would spend three and a half hours making meals each day. So 
all this arduous labor going into food preparation at home. And now you have this sudden product. It's in a cellophane wrapper. You open the wrapper. You put the dried noodles into a deep bowl, a donburi, which, of course, the Japanese have. And we can talk about why the styrofoam cup was invented later because it doesn't really – deep bowls for soup don't really exist in the U.S. You add hot water. You open your little packet of seasoning. You sprinkle it on, and voila, after two minutes, you have this tasty, semi-nutritious – fun meal. And the kind of thunderclap of applause from consumers was astounding. They loved it. It transformed people's lives at that time. Well, that's interesting because I'm thinking, okay, 1958. And, you know, when I think of 1958 in America, I'm thinking of the birth of fast food and Mm. I'm thinking of TV dinners and convenience for all kinds of political and sociological reasons. Tell us how this packet of instant ramens came to be. Like, Who was behind it? Who created it and why? So instant ramen itself, instant ramen fundamentally grows out of Japanese post-war poverty and lack of access to food. And there's a gentleman named Ando Momofuku, who is Japanese, but was kind of born and raised periphery of the Japanese empire in Taiwan. So arguably as a child is exposed to Japanese and uh, forms of Taiwanese slash uh, Chinese food. And about around 1948, he starts what is a decade-long program to find some sort of easy-to-eat-and-store Japanese food that will be an antidote to starvation. Why? Who was he? Like, What's his background? Right. So he had been an inventor. He's actually imprisoned several times for, it seems, perhaps tax evasion. He's suffering at the end of the war and at the start of the occupation under the American occupation. And there's just not enough food in the early days of the Japanese occupation. And it's hard to find access to gasoline for stoves or coal or wood or just access to a clean kitchen because Japan's been pulverized by the air raid. So he feels if you can make, if you can create some sort of dish that just kind of expands or whatnot, you can add simply hot water to it, you can imagine what a transformation that will be in people's lives. But it's not so easy for two reasons. One, he doesn't really quite know how to make the product itself, although he has the idea. And two, what should he make? And luckily, he's has an acquaintance or he's friends with the Bureau of Nutrition head at the Ministry of Health and Welfare, who tells him about a new American plan that's going to import wheat flour from the Philippines, which had been stockpiled by the Americans for a potential invasion and occupation of Japan. Of course, the invasion of Japan never happens because Japan surrenders and America has all this leftover flour in the Philippines. And so after a bit of hemming and hawing, because initially the Americans have no intention of helping the Japanese out with their problems. They said, you started the war, you finished it, you deal with it. But they realized within a few years that Japan could, or they feared that Japan could potentially go communist They see starvation in the streets. They see May Day riots, support for communists, and they say, we have to do something. And they actually try and convince the Japanese to make bread. But Japanese kitchens, if they existed at that time, they don't have ovens for bread. So Ando comes up with the idea to use that flour and make some kind of noodles. He, of course, knows Japan has a history of noodle soup that we just talked about, ramen, and he can make a viable product there. But it takes 10 years. So Instant ramen, the instant ramen, the chicken ramen package that you talk about that arrived in 1958, is a very different Japan than he had started the product for in the late 1940s. So in the late 1940s, was he experimenting with that flour? He's experimenting with how to make some long-lasting and tasty form of noodle that you'll be able to pour the hot water over and use, or in some fashion, keep it stored. We'll be back after this short break. 
Over on the Warfare Podcast by History Hit, we bring you brand new military histories from around the world. Each week, twice a week, we release new episodes with world-leading historians, expert policymakers, and the veterans who served. From the greatest tanks of the Second World War... And so what are you actually trying to get out of your tank? You're trying to get manoeuvrability and you're trying to get a really big gun. Your Tiger and your Panther are there to dominate the battlefield, primarily on the Eastern Front and in the North Africa and all that sort of stuff. But by the time they're actually coming in in decent numbers, that moment has already passed. Through to new histories that help us understand current conflicts... Any invader, any attacker, any adversary will exploit gaps within society. It was true then, it's true today. But the Finns signaled that they were united, and I think that's what the Ukrainians should signal today too. Subscribe to Warfare from History Hit wherever you get your podcasts, and join us on the front lines of military history. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I mean, you said that there was no, you know, they didn't make bread because there were no ovens. But it's odd because, I mean, every culture has some kind of bread as a sort of traditional staple. And I'm surprised that he didn't kind of go, oh, well, you know, why don't I build ovens or... Well, building ovens is much more time-consuming and expensive than giving the, the simple product. And bread is not that popular. I mean, the Supreme Commander of the Allied Forces, they do all these questionnaires during the occupation, and the Japanese don't want bread. And they really face a problem of getting the Japanese to change their diet. And Ando realizes that because he is Japanese and his experience... And, you know, it's it's one of the reasons that he keeps pushing forward. We don't kind of really know as much about how does he make ends meet in this 10-year period. You know, 1958, Japan is completely different than it had been 10 years prior. It's of course. It's on its way to rebuilding. Within two years, the Prime Minister Ikide will talk about doubling income. And so the instant ramen, instant noodles, arrives at a time in Japan. It's a perfect moment. It's a confluence of economic expansion, Japanese moving from rural to city, and people are looking for this, as you said, fast food. Was Ando sort of trying to ape what was going on in America in terms of fast food, in terms of convenience? Was he aware? No, I don't think so. You don't see any of that, at least in his interviews and whatnot. He will be looking to the American market much more in the late 60s when he travels there. And then he makes the star for cup noodle 
and whatnot and, and further inventions. We're going to talk about the pot noodle in a minute. It's all <laughs> building up to the pot noodle crescendo. <laughs> yeah, I mean, McDonald's comes in slightly after that, and that's a big moment in Japan. But he's, I would say, much more influenced by food preferences that he sees in East Asia. Okay. And convenience, the idea of instant convenience, the word doesn't yet exist in Japanese. It's sokuseki. They use a Japanese word for instant, and then it becomes instanto ramen. So I think the Western influence comes later. That's interesting. What was his innovation then? So he's making noodles with this glut of flour. Yeah. What was the the kind of eureka moment? Was it just dehydrating or what was the process? Yeah, pretty much you, you deep fry them in a sense to dehydrate them, at least initially. And then the hot water restores them. I mean, uh, the technology has changed over time a bit and there's a bit more than it to that and the packaging as well. And you the seasoning is set aside. And everyone already had a bowl and chopsticks and oftentimes access to hot water. The technology was how do you get the noodles to stay put once they're dehydrated and reform without becoming just this massive flour kind of paste when you put the hot water into it. This idea of deep frying, when I think of dehydrating food, I don't think about deep, I wouldn't deep fry it first. So where, no. I mean, I suppose deep frying is part of Japanese cuisine. Yeah, certainly with tempura and others. Yeah. I mean, he's just experimenting at that point in the shed behind his house that you can go see at the Instant Ramen Museum. They have an Instant Ramen Museum. There is a museum for everything in Japan and they're very well run. <laughs> was he a chef, by the way? Like, was he a good cook or? No, he's an entrepreneur, basically. Right, okay. He's an entrepreneur, he's an inventor, he's a tinkerer, like we see in around the world individuals, and he just kind of kept at it. You know, it could have been arguably somebody else, but he's the one that sticks to it. And he's the one that also is thinking about how to use this excess wheat flour that besides the American occupation officials, no one else is kind of really digging into. Okay, so 1958, he comes up with this packet of instant noodles. How do we go from that to marketing it? I'm presuming he said, look what I've done, and everyone thought he was bonkers. I think it's the timing. You know, when you look back at how it's sold, it's the convenience, the taste, the fact that you could now, in a sense, replicate somewhat of that ramen experience at home or in the office or at work or late at night means that there is an untapped, enormous consumer demand that grows. Had this come out, let's say, 10 years prior? Probably not. But now people are living in rebuilt urban neighborhoods, small kitchens, nuclear family, kind of, you know, four to maybe a two-bedroom apartment or even a one-bedroom apartment. So the convenience, the ease, it is snapped up. And the publicity campaigns start out small. I would say they get much bigger as TV expands and you get these fantastic TV commercials from the late 1970s into the 1980s. Nishin, the company, is very adept at promoting. There's a huge promotion campaign from the 80s into the 90s. Well, that's it. And presumably as well, it went international. I mean, I remember when I was a kid in the UK eating Kellogg's Super Noodles, which was basically that. It was packets of dehydrated noodles. So how quickly did it take on internationally? We're going to have to talk about cup noodle here because it goes international after he changes the packaging and then everyone else follows that as well, which is, I mean, nowadays it does so well even in the cellophane packets because we have access to different bowls and different kind of cutlery in the West. But in the late 1960s, when he first goes through Hawaii and goes to the mainland U.S., he notices this is not going to work because there's no bowls deep enough. It's just a regular shallow soup bowl. And that won't have enough of the kind of swimming pool of soup that's needed to bathe the noodles. And so you have to create the cup in which the noodles are. So he saw that. He realized that actually the real genius was inventing the cup as well, the pot of the pot noodle. 
Yeah, he says he has the eureka moment when he's opening a can of macadamia nuts on the flight through Hawaii. And he opens the container and he realizes, ah, if I can get my noodles in this container, then I can pour the hot water in the container. It'll be a self-contained unit of food and eating, which doesn't exist. But there's one problem. It's interesting. I mean, and the company, of course, that he founds or that he establishes keeps making all these inventions. And one of the interesting things that they told me when I interviewed some of the guys at the Instant Ramen Museum years ago was, it sounds easy, right? You create this cup and then you put the noodles in, but you can't just put the noodles into the cup because they will sit at the bottom and they will get all soggy. And what they realize is you have to put a ridge in the cup so that the noodles stay suspended halfway in the cup, that the water pools at the bottom And then it goes up. So at the end of the process, the noodles are floating at the top so you can mix them and they will get the full energy of the hot water and don't just stay submerged and become a gloppy mess. And, you know, it's one of these interesting food technology moments that you think, wow, I never I never would have thought of that. Right. You say styrofoam, but when I think of styrofoam, I think of, you know, styrofoam, the cups. It's a kind of hard plastic rather than the soft, squidgy. It is now, but it, yeah, it started out as more styrofoam and they've oh, advanced. I see. Okay. I mean, they've advanced to the point that you have self-heating instant <laughs> ramen cups now as well, although they haven't really caught on as much. They do. I remember that in, in sort of camping food shops, they had self-heating. Can I just say, so he was on a flight to Hawaii when he discovered this, the sort of details of this lost in history. Like, why was he going to Hawaii? Just on holiday. Hawaii is a popular destination for Japanese to travel. I think he's looking at the foreign market at that point. He's considering what he can do. I mean, to get back to your question of why does this explode around the world, I think what's important to talk about is that how instant ramen adapts to local tastes. And I think that's one of the reasons it's been so successful. And to go back to your pot noodle comment, a lot of people around the world don't actually know that instant noodle or pot noodle is a Japanese invention because it houses their local taste. They assume it's something that just started in Indonesia or Malaysia. It really is. And certainly the pot noodle in the UK, certainly in the 1970s and the 1980s, because Chinese food was really, really popular. Well, it is really popular, but it was really popular, the Chinese takeaway. Yeah. And so the pot noodle, it was the sweet and sour pot noodle, very based on Chinese taste rather than specific Japanese. And now you can buy, you know, curry pot noodle. But then we got chicken and sweet corn and things. That's right. Oh, the curry pot. Well, the curry pot noodle is a thing of genius. We could do a whole hour on the curry pot. Actually, one of my great delicacies in life is the curry pot noodle sandwich. Curry pot noodle sandwich. Have you not had one of those? You are quite the gourmet. No, I haven't. <laughs> Honestly, you need really, really cheap, low quality bread. Okay. You need thick butter and then uh. the pot noodle. But actually, the pot noodle is interesting because it's not that liquidy. You don't get the noodles on the top and the liquid at the bottom. It's all kind of mixed up in a kind of umami. Umami package. Deliciousness. <laughs> so a huge hit straight away with the styrofoam cup. I mean, we see it everywhere now. There's certainly a resounding response from consumers, but it's not the international 120 billion packages currently sold per year. Is that what it is? Crikey. That's what it seems from, I was looking at their stats last night and that's what it seems to be. It just escalates and keeps climbing because the companies keep adapting, as you said, with your curry pot noodle sandwich, they keep adapting to more and expanded local taste. And so in a sense, local cuisine, what the Japanese call B-class cuisine, that attaches itself to kind of food tourism, and then people want to collect and eat that more. What's it called? B class. What does that mean? B class, BQ gourmet. It means kind of A class is the highfalutin. Oh, I see. You know, fancy restaurants, and B class gourmet is kind of local, good street food cuisine, but of quality. 
But it's interesting when we think about instant ramen as Japanese to get back to our earlier conversation. The top three countries are really China, Korea, and Indonesia, where instant ramen is consumed more per person. I've got to ask you, so why this story was particularly interesting? I mean, obviously, it's an interesting story of invention. It comes down to a certain person, and that's interesting. But what was it for you that really, like, what was it about the story that, as an academic, you found compelling and as a historian? So there's this big question in Japan about, you know, what do Japanese people eat? And I think until recently, we, a lot of us thought, well, Japanese people, they eat fish, they eat differently than other people. And then you go there, as you said, and you see that they eat tempura, they eat shrimp prawn croquets they, or croquettes, they eat all sorts of different things. And I didn't like Japanese food when I first went there. And I encountered late one night with a colleague drunkenly, he took me to a ramen restaurant. And finally, I could relax and eat because I thought this food was fantastic. And I couldn't figure out why the Japanese said they ate one way and kind of promoted that internationally. But then at home and in other restaurants, they ate a completely different way. And I wanted to find out why that was. How did you have this rich, meaty noodle soup served in bars late at night or for lunch to office men? And that that was somehow considered Japanese food. But then when you ask people, you know, what is Japanese food? They always say, oh, it's a small soup. It's a couple side dishes of pickled vegetables and it's a bowl of rice. And that wasn't what ramen was at all. And I thought, how do we marry these two seemingly opposite forms of eating? And I was thinking about that a few years while I was into the U.S. government. And then I had the fortune of reading a book that kind of transformed my academic life that was looking at Japan in the mid-19th century. Because we always paint the history of Japan as modernization and westernization. And I was reading a book about the opening of Yokohama, one of the major new port cities just around the 1850s, 1860s in Japan, the opening of Japan. And it wasn't Westerners who were the most important. It was the Chinese. There are more Chinese, there are more foreigners who are Chinese in Japan until really the, almost the post-war than any other group. And I think we've ignored the role they played in Japan. We ignored how they conversed with Japanese because they could share a, a semi-common writing system. They were cooks for the Westerners a lot of times. They were the ones who went shopping. They were the ones who did the cooking for a lot of the new people coming into the various port cities. And their influence has been forgotten. And for me, it was a different way of looking at Sino-Japanese history, my own personal interest of why did I like this part of Japanese cuisine and not the other parts? And what did it all mean? And kind of that's how the question was born. Really, really interesting. Hey, Barrett, we're out of time. I think food politics is one of the most interesting subjects. It is. Food history and food politics, because it opens portals, it opens doors to all kinds of other things. It touches on the personal and the national at the same time. Yeah, really, really fascinating. Listen, thank you so much for sharing your Japanese ramen journey with us thank you very much and i wish you well and just briefly what are you up to at the moment so you've written the book slurp which people if they want to dig a little bit deeper i've written a book slurp and i wrote a book on uh, japanese war crimes and chinese justice after that yes and the next one will be called the geography of injustice so i've kind of moved back to that but you'll be happy to know that in the future after this next one comes out at the end of this year i'm probably going to go back to cultural history and i'm thinking of calling the next book flush and I'm looking at the history of toilets in East Asia. Hey, we just did an episode on toilets. And of course, you cannot do an episode on the invention of the toilet without talking about Japanese toilets. Just very quickly as a little sign off. What is the Japanese obsession with crazy, multifunctioning, many buttoned toilets? I would say it's an increasing obsession with hygiene and applying the technology to hygienic technological advances. 
And it sells as well, right? It's one of those things that Westerners, when they go to Japan, it's the first thing they take photos of and stick up on Instagram. It's like, hey, look what I'm sitting on. And it's a little uncomfortable, but once you've experienced it, you never want to go back to the old toilet again. No, I can never, I can't get used to it. No, no. I just prefer a hole in the ground. That's what I have. (laughs) Just a hole in the ground. Listen, thank you very much for coming on the show. Come on again. You've had such an interesting career and do some wonderful work. So thank you very much indeed. Thanks for inviting me. That's it. Thank you very much for listening. I hope that's whetted your appetite for more episodes of Patented. Go back and listen to others in the back catalogue. We've done programmes about pretty much everything and there's a lot more to come. Don't forget to tell your friends and family if you've enjoyed the show and maybe they would like to listen too. And don't forget, as ever, get in touch if you've got a suggestion for a topic or a story you'd like us to cover or investigate, you can email us at patented at historyhit.com or you can send me a DM on Twitter or wherever or you can stop me in the street as ever. We love hearing your ideas and we love hearing your comments. See you next time. While I still have you, very briefly, if you fancy getting all of the History Hit podcast archive and new episodes ad-free, along with hundreds of history documentaries to watch. Download our app across Apple App Store, Google Play, and smart TV platforms. Follow the link in the show notes, or go to historyhit.com slash subscribe. There is thousands of hours of history on there, including a documentary on science in the Middle Ages with Seb Volk, and also one with me talking about the secret history of the space race. As a patented listener, you get a special gift if you use the code Patented at the checkout, you get 50% off your first three months. That's patented for 50% off your first three months. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free podcast episodes within the Apple app.